Hello everybody, Jordan Skinner here with another awesome episode of the Crushing It in Construction podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to the construction industry where I interview amazing guests from within the industry that share their experience, their wisdom and their insights that'll help you, the listener, either grow within your career or grow within your business. So no matter where you are in the industry, there is always something valuable to learn from our guests and their stories. Now, this week I'm having a chat with Ben Lloyd from Trinity. And Ben has a bit of an interesting background because he actually didn't intend on coming into the family business. He actually went and studied HR and marketing. And I think that study gives him a really unique perspective on managing people and how to go about new business development and all that sort of stuff, which we kind of touch on in this episode. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode because I think there's a lot to learn and a lot that people can take away from Ben's unique experiences. So let's get into it. G'day, Ben. Thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. How's your day been so far? Yeah, a bit of a scramble this morning, closing a tender. We don't usually like to take it down to the wire, but this morning it did, but we got it in, so. Yeah, that's awesome. It's always the way with tenders. You think you leave yourself plenty of time and then the last hour's coming around and you're still scrambling trying to get things sorted. I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chat with you today. Trinity came across my radar a few weeks ago and I was really interested to see what you guys were working on. I reached out. You and I had a bit of a pre-interview and I've been looking forward to actually recording the podcast with you ever since. But could you tell everybody that's listening who you are and what it is that you guys do at Trinity? I'm a 36-year-old, 15-year veteran now of the industry. Did my very, very best not to end up in the industry. My dad started our company in 1995 as a commercial fit-out and refurbishment business. He fell into government and education work pretty much early on and, and carried that through very consistently until I took over the business three years ago in November of 2019, right before COVID. So yeah, I did a, a HR and marketing degree, doing my best not to end up in a family business and then finished the degree and had a sabbatical down the snow. And then my dad sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, come on, let's get serious now. Why don't you try estimating? So I fell into the business in an estimating role. Yeah, that was 15 years ago. And so that was your first official role within the industry is is estimating? Yeah. At the time, we had two other sort of senior estimators. And yeah, they were very gracious to me and spent sort of the first three years of just yeah, learning the ropes from estimating. People come into this game from all sorts of ways, shapes and forms. But for me, getting an understanding of the cost structure of our industry is the basis. Oh, I've carried that through right till today. And that's definitely still the way I operate. And I'm very grateful that that was my path. Did you ever get to exercise your chops with HR and marketing in any other company before you came into the construction game? Yeah, good question. I think a lot of people resonate this with a higher education experience. I did HR and thought, oh, okay, HR, you know, and at uni, university teaches you everything you need to know when you're an executive. But the problem is there's probably, you know, usually a 10-year process between graduation and actually being able to practice a lot of those skill sets. So I did get a role at Toyota. It was a temporary role, which it ended up being three months, but it was long enough for me to realize that HR wasn't what I thought it was. It's a lot of administration, a lot of listening to people winch, a lot of dealing with people that sell things on eBay rather than doing their day job. Just stuff that I was like, oh, okay. Then the light went on. And so that's when I pissed off and decided to take a bar job down the snow. Yeah, fair enough. Do you think, even though it wasn't a career that you made in those two disciplines, how do you think that has helped you do what you do today, which is running a company? In every way, shape, or form, you're 100% correct. So what's interesting is that the only sort of clear vision I had going way back when was I took um, business studies in year 11 and I had an excellent, excellent teacher. 
She had passion. She championed me and built me up. And at that point, everyone's asking, oh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And, and I just knew that I loved business. I loved the concept of business. I loved the strategy behind it. Even with no application to any of the concepts I was learning at that point in time, that's something I was very, very clear of. And the great thing is that I guess I could have implemented that in just about any industry. And looking back now, if we jump all the way forward, which I'm sure we'll fill in some of the gaps between, I'm very grateful that my dad did tap me on the shoulder because I do love this industry. It's a very challenging industry, but you can practice those concepts any, any way you want. And I'm just grateful that I was, was given the opportunity to do it in business that, yeah, my dad spent the best part of 25 years nurturing. Yeah. So before you got the tap on the shoulder, after you'd been on your snow sabbatical, what was your exposure to the industry growing up? I mean, were you out on sites with your old man when he was building the business? Did you have any sort of prior experience? Was this how you grew up? Yeah, it was. So my dad would say, oh, hey, you know, our demo contractor needs extra labor. I'd spend two, three or six weeks of the holidays tearing down walls and getting a good feel. I definitely a good feel for the industry. And 100% as a family business, it was often at the dinner table of an evening that the talk would be about his day and, you know, projects he was successful on, struggles. And so it was definitely something that I did have a lot of exposure and grief with him from an early age. Yeah. I know you said you wanted to avoid the business altogether, but was there any inclination as you were growing up that your dad had started this business as a way of leaving something behind and having you part of the succession plan? No, definitely not. I'm one of five kids. So for my dad, it was purely to give opportunity for us as a family. That was 100% okay. his motivation. And it's interesting you say that. It sort of came to a point for both of us that we both looked at each other and said, oh, okay, so I guess I'm going to retire soon and I guess you're the guy to take it over. I never joined the business with succession in mind. I was stepping into a business with a bunch of guys with 30 plus years experience. So I was just grateful to be amongst people that could teach and, and nurture me in the industry. And so the succession was never from the center of, of anything we did. We started working on it probably in 2018 and it took the best part of a year and a half to really work out what that would look like because particularly with a construction business, there's obviously a lot of money involved. Like you, you have to have a very strong balance sheet and my dad was very, very good at keeping money in the business, but I was personally obviously didn't have that kind of wealth. So we had to work out how that would look like from a transactional perspective. And as well from a management perspective, because at that point I was 35, I, I had a fair bit of experience, but I was also very conscious of where I was on my trajectory and the fact that I needed good people around me to continue to manage risk, particularly being a constructing business. My old man also was very sure of in that process was that a business partner would be a good outcome for the business, particularly for me, because I came from the university perspective. Although I'd spent some time yeah, tearing down walls or whatever, I wasn't a tradesman. And I actually went and got my builder's license, did my diploma. So I was a licensed builder, but I wasn't a chippy. There was a family friend of ours. At that point, he was 16 years at Lend Lease. And so we tapped him on the shoulder. It was almost, yeah, a captain's pick, I guess, of my dad saying, look, I think this would be a really good partnership moving forward. So what we agreed in, basically, heads of agreement was that I would take care of the pre-construction side of things and oops, get an MD role to manage the commercial side of business. And my business partner, Kane Lawson, would take care of the side of what we do. So we've been doing that for three and a bit years now. We got through two of the worst years of business we've seen in COVID, which was a good hospital pass for my dad. Yeah, yeah definitely going to have the best year we've ever had this year, which is great. 
One point that you touched on there that I'd like to double click on is you wanted to keep good people around you. Was it a real fear for you and maybe your business partner as well that once that transition was finished, like how you were going to keep hold of the good people that were there and whether you personally had the respect of those people to be able to lead those people and not have them leave? Was that a fear? It was, it was interesting because, yeah, a lot of things happened around that time. One of them was that my dad had a lot of people that came through the business with him. They were all the same vintage. It was quite funny. So within, within a couple of years, we had a, a lot of change within the team. I think my dad had gained a lot of respect out of all the staff. Above anything else, they wanted to see Trinity to continue to succeed. So I felt that very strongly. They were very, very supportive of me. We were able to have very constructive conversations along the way. They were able to call things out that they saw when they saw fit, and I was very grateful for that. We had a fantastic trend of leadership and management of the business, which was definitely a risk that we saw going into it. Hey guys, Jordan here, and I want to ask you a question. Is your company actually attractive to potential employees? Because if not, you're making attracting and retaining talent even harder than it already is. See, every year, job seekers are behaving more and more like consumers, and they're now using the sophisticated methods that we all use when researching new products and services online to evaluate employers. And if a company wants to consistently attract top quality people to their company, then they need to actively manage their brand as an employer and show people why working for them is a great choice. It sounds simple, but it's not easy. That's why I created our employer brand scorecard a free resource to help business owners in the construction industry gain an understanding of how attractive their company is in the job market. Simply answer 16 yes or no questions about your business's recruitment activities, and then once you're finished, your answers will get pumped through an algorithm to produce your final score. Then, based on your answers, you'll receive a tailored report full of practical ways that you can make your company more attractive to potential employees. So if you want to check that out, head to moonshotmedia.com.au forward slash scorecard or look for a link wherever you're listening to this. It only takes five minutes and it's completely free. With that said, I want to thank you again for tuning in and I'll let you get back to this week's episode. But I suppose just to paint a bit more of a holistic picture of the business, could you explain to us some of the various stages that the company's actually been through? So from when your old man started the business to where it is today, what are some of those key milestones and things that have been ticked off leading up to where it is now? I would describe the way my dad ran the business as he ran a very organic business. And I use that word because he never particularly went hard to market. He just let his goodwill and relationships sort of drive the growth and the activity of the business. It took him probably the first five or six years to become about a $10 million business. He maintained that 10 to $12 million for the next 15 years, very consistently delivering very well for very, very loyal clients, making a decent living and giving our family huge opportunities. But certainly, he didn't really grow the business far beyond that. And this is where I think the only place that I'd see would be not being critical, but when you run an old business that's purely organic and there's a downturn, there's a lot of people that go aggressively to market to maintain activity. And certainly I remember those years, the GFC, that was when I just sort of started with the company has been very, very tough. And my dad would tell the story that he was probably weeks, if not a month or two away from either making significant cuts to the company or even shutting it down when the government announced the building education revolution. And that 
was instantly $10 million worth of work that came into our company. And so that was sort of one of the pivotal moments there that I saw the importance of opportunity and taking opportunity when it comes to you. And I think what it is, Jordan, is you have to have a lot of, or a certain level of self-belief in your service offerings. I've missed out on opportunity because I haven't stuck my hand up. I often see sometimes a competitor who I know we can perform and we're more well-suited to that opportunity get in front of me and get that opportunity. And I think that's where, if I look back on my father, on the way he ran the business, when I say organically, there could have been a lot more opportunity at that point in time. And fast forwarding all the way forward, that's certainly the one thing that I've sort of tried to double down on. And maybe it's a bit of the marketing that I studied in a day or whatever it is. But it's, I think it's, for me, it's just believing in, in your offering and, yeah. and taking it strongly to market and then enjoying the benefit of that. And I'm not talking benefit financially. I'm talking the satisfaction in, in actually delivering on what you're good at and seeing your clients being grateful to what you build business to do. And the security that comes with having a continuity of work for your employees, for cash flow, for all of those things that come with it. But I think you make an important point because I know a lot of companies, my old man's included, that just do really, really good work, have been around, are trustworthy, they're loyal, they do what they say they're going to do and heavily rely on referrals and past clients coming back. And that's awesome, but I think this is where we agree. I, th- I think they're probably like that because they see marketing in the traditional sense as blowing your bags and bragging and all the rest of it. But there's a classy way of going about things, which is what I think you've kind of alluded to in that there's nothing wrong with being proud of your work and just standing by it and putting it in front of the right people at the right time. But I definitely think being bolder, as you put it, and really get in front of those right people at the right time is something that would drastically help the feast and famine cycle that the industry is known for as well. Because what it is, Jordan, is you can be very good at what you do in, in your core business and you can believe in that offering. But if you're not good at communicating it, then you can't practice it. And there's a business that's come to Sydney in the last couple of years and they're a direct competitor of ours. I'm probably a little bit bigger, but they've taken heaps of market share. They've gone from zero to 50, 100 million within a couple of years. And word is across the market that they're delivering very poorly everywhere. Not always, but nearly everywhere. And that's another one where you kick yourself and you think, they're my opportunities that they're taking because they're better at selling and, and marketing their service offering than I am. I know I can deliver just as well, if not better than them, but they've beat me on the marketing and, and relationship front. So you can't just be thinking about what your core business is and being good at that. You, you've got to compete on, on all facets of the business in order to be successful. You're probably a good person to have this conversation with, but traditionally marketing in our industry, because of the way that we find work, you know, through a tendering process that has basically been designed to strip out any personal relationship or advantage that you can get related to winning work. Because of that, marketing has a bit of a a bad reputation. But what are the methods that you are seeing and that you have adopted to, because marketing in the traditional sense, we're not selling widgets, we're not selling stuff on a website. It is a different way of going about it. What is it that you guys do when we're saying marketing or being bolder and putting your name out there and the tactics that you use to do that? Like, is it just building relationships? What exactly do you do? I mean, certainly there's a couple of things I can talk to though. And the first one is that even if you are entering the most bulletproof procurement tendering process, and we do a lot of government and education and publicly funded projects, which are very, very robust in terms of their procurement. Not always, but nearly always, there's a relationship that starts that first. And increasingly as well, I'd argue that even though the procurement process is what it is, 
the people behind those procurement processes, they want relationship as well, Jordan. So even though there's a procurement process between you and the buyer, relationship is still a very important part of that. And the reason for that is, is it always just comes down to trust. And trust is very, very hard thing to communicate in marketing materials. I would argue marketing material often does the opposite to build trust. You know, it only creates questions. And because of the rise of the social medias and all that, people's distrust in media is huge. And I think that extends to the marketing documents. So I still believe that people buy on trust and that trust is only built in a relationship. And certainly, even the most robust procurement processes that we've been involved in, every now and then there's exceptions to the rule, but I would say that we always challenge ourselves on the relationship. We were even unsuccessful on a project this week, and one of the feedback from the client was that our BDM never contacted the senior representative behind the project. So the comment was that, oh, we didn't know you were keen on the job. And I'm like, tendering costs us 15 to 20 grand, George. (laughs) It's not about not being keen, come on. But what I got from that conversation is that people want relationship. You have to be very, very good at relationship. Yeah, it's a great point. And I suppose it's easier said than done, but you've got to be willing to take the long-term view and it's not a quick process building relationships and therefore it's something that's got to be worked on over time before you really start seeing the results. So you've got to be willing to invest, I suppose, is my point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely reaping the benefits of that now and transition from my, my dad running a business organically. And over the history, he probably appointed four or five business development agents over that time. And there was one period where we had one particular VDM and she took our business from 12 to 20 million within two years. And like there's economic activity and other things involved, but there's a very real example of the power of good relationship. And then we had two or three other mediums over that period and we didn't see the same results. So so what is it that she did that made her so much more successful than the other business development reps she had? She developed trust with people. She already had a good legacy in the industry. She was an honest person. And people trusted her, not only in what she was selling for us, but also she would often help other people. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely both sides. It's just bringing the humanity back into what is a largely transactional game. Yeah, yeah. And that's one theme that I've consistently got from speaking to you is that you're really invested in people and relationships. And I think moving forward, it's going to put you and the business in such a great position when competing against people that are just after the transaction, that's for sure. Have there been any real major hurdles that you've had to overcome or lessons that you've learned along the way since you've taken over the business? So for me, it was coming up through business. I worked through various roles of being an estimator or project manager or operations manager for a period of time. And for me, I developed, I guess, a level of competency in those sort of roles but when the succession plan became on the cards, I was very, very conscious that I had no idea what a director was or how to be a director. And I knew the risk. And so I guess I was very exposed. And so I went out of my way to understand what it was that I need and then how to get it and how to build it. Particularly because around this time, a couple of my competitors had gone under. And I was very grateful to be asked yet. One of the best textbooks you can ever read in this industry is Administrator's Report for a Business. If you haven't get your hands on one, they're great reads because they're very blatantly honest about why a business has gone under. So when a business goes under, administrators are appointed and they'll write a report to the creditors and they'll say, this is the situation, this is why the business went under and you'll get one cent in a dollar (laughs) or whatever you end up with. 
they generally write a couple of papers of just good quality of information of why a business goes under. So I was able to see why what I considered and what most of the industry considered were great businesses, why they went under. And I basically took those reports to someone I was introduced to who would become my mentor. And I said, I don't want this to be me. And so we set about having regular meetings and just building my skill set, building processes that I know are with me for the next 20 years or however long I choose to continue to run Trinity. It's really interesting because I've never heard somebody say that they've gone and read liquidators reports as a way of like figuring out what not to do in their own business. So that's, that's really interesting. I find that cool. I've really enjoyed having this chat with you. I find it really interesting how people go about things differently. And I've definitely learned a few different ways of going about various things by chatting to you. I always like to end these episodes on a bit of a personal notes, just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Is there a weird or interesting fact about yourself that most people won't know? Weird or interesting. People ask me what sports I like, and I'm not very good around the water cooler because I follow surfing and cycling, so it's too obscure. So when the conversation turns to rugby or cricket or whatever, I'm, I'm no good. I'm actually not at all interested in sort of mainstream sports, which becomes problematic in some business engagements because I've got nothing to contribute at all. I, I don't even watch the State of Origin, which is obviously very big on the East Coast. It's, yeah. So what do you say when there's lycra or wetsuits involved, come chat to me? Yeah, exactly. Which no one wants to see me in, in either of those, but I'm, I'm <laughs> regularly wearing tight-fitting clothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Well, like I said, I've really enjoyed having this chat. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and share things. Where can people contact you, learn more about Trinity and just generally get in touch if they want to learn more about you or the business? You can easily find us on, on the LinkedIn or the website. We post weekly product updates coming out in the next couple of weeks of some of our current projects, which would be really nice. And they're actually straight from our site managers. So we've actually almost thrown our socials to our site managers so they can share directly what's happening on, on a couple of our sites. And for us, although we started as a fit-out business, it's come to fruition now that we've moved into construction with five new projects coming out of the ground. So it's quite exciting for us and they're all going very, very well. So. Yeah, you'll see those coming out on, on LinkedIn in the next couple of weeks. We'll link to the company's LinkedIn page and, and the website in the show notes as well for everybody that's listening that wants to find them easily. But other than that, thanks very much for your time, Ben. Have a good rest of your week. Right here, Jordan. Love your work. Thank you. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player, and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.